Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. We are live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feed, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We are continuing our player rankings today with number 15, 14, and 13. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to The Volume's YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And last but not least, if for whatever reason you guys missed one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. Number 15, a player that I've already seen some people complaining about how high I have him on this list, but I'm going to kind of dive into that a little bit later. This is one of my favorite young players in the league, a specific archetype of player that I've always been a big fan of. And I believe that this type of player succeeds in the playoffs for some very important reasons that we're going to get into. At number 15, I have Anthony Edwards. The quick recap of the season, he got better in every single way this year. He had career highs in points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, field goal percentage, and three-point percentage. Finished the year at 25-6-4, 4, 56.4% true shooting. And he went up a huge level against the Denver Nuggets in the playoffs. Averaged 32 points, five rebounds, and five assists on 60% True shooting. Now, if you guys remember last year against Memphis, he also played really well for his first playoff series as a 20-year-old. He averaged 25 points per game on 60% true shooting against that Memphis team. That was one of the best defenses in the league that season. So in 11 career playoff games, Ant is averaging 28 points, 5 rebounds, and 4 assists on 60% true shooting. And he's 21 years old. At age 21, he has already demonstrated the ability to be productive and efficient in the NBA playoffs. Now, he still has a lot of room to grow, obviously. Um, but again, we have to remember in the playoffs, a lot of players struggle. Even, even as we're getting into this 10 to 25 range, there are a lot of players that are inconsistent and up and down in the playoffs. So to me, even at this point in time, 
He's the 15th best player in the NBA. The um, Timberwolves were five points better per 100 possessions when Ant was on the floor versus off the floor in the regular season. 13 points better per 100 possessions with Ant on the floor in the playoffs versus when he was off the floor. Now, Ant's big foundational skill, the number one thing that he has as a leg up against all his peers, is he's just one of the best athletes in the league at his position, but not strictly as a movement athlete, like a guy like John Morant. He also has that in combination with real size and strength. Now, some of you guys who have been listening for a long time might have heard me kind of come to a conclusion in this particular playoff run that big athletic guards are actually somewhat more valuable than the long skinny wings. And it's because they're fire hydrants to steal a term from my friend Pete Zayas. They literally cannot be moved off of their spot on both ends of the floor. So as they're driving past people, they tend to blow through their shoulder and get around them. As they are defending on the perimeter, they tend to beat guys to spots and hold them in their spot, especially as physicality is allowed at a higher level in the postseason. They win a ton of perimeter battles, which is becoming more and more important as the NBA kind of enters into this new modern era. And so Anthony Edwards represents that archetype of athlete, but at the guard position, and that's what makes, or as a, I should say, he represents that type of athlete as a star, and and that's what separates him from a lot of his peers. He has that specific type of athletic build, but he has that skill set, the little bit of skill set, and the unwavering confidence and competitiveness that you see in stars, and that puts together one of the best players in the league. He gets to the rim a ton. He made 4.2 shots per game in the restricted area this year on 64% shooting. That was third in the entire NBA among guards behind only Shea Gilgis-Alexander and John Morant. As I've said before, he reminds me of a guard version of LeBron in the sense that like, he doesn't necessarily have to be the shiftiest guy in the world. When he just hits a gap, even if it's the tiniest gap, he's just blowing through people's shoulders and getting all the way to the rim with the sheer amount of downhill power that he brings to the table, which is why he went up a level against Denver and why he's been such a successful playoff player, in my opinion. He went up to 4.6 restricted area makes per game against Denver on the same efficiency, 64%. Now, do you guys remember when we were talking with about Paul George yesterday about the concept of defending on your heels versus defending on your toes? Uh, Anthony Edwards gets really good looks at pull-up jump shots because defenders are constantly on their heels. They have to concede shots to Anthony Edwards to have any chance of keeping him in front off the dribble. And so as a result, he gets to rise up into these relatively uncontested pull-up jump shots, and he makes them. He made 46% in effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers in the regular season, which again, not a great number, not great compared to his uh, peers at the top of the league, but for a young player at age 21, that's excellent. And then it's translating at a very high level to the postseason. He had a 55% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers in the playoffs against Denver and 57% effective field goal percentage last year against Memphis. Now, keep that in mind. That That is a top-tier number. So in the playoffs, he's hitting pull-up jump shots at the same level as his superstar peers around the league. And again, I think that's a huge part I think a huge part of that is just him having defenders on their heels with how good he is at beating people off the dribble. Now, again, a lot of people in my comments were uh, inferring that I had Anthony Edwards in my top 15 and wondering why, and they were concerned that I had him too high. And so there are two quick things that I wanted to say about that. First, like I said in the first video, there's just not that much of a gap 
between basically my top tier drops off after number 11 and I have the top tier kind of split into two tiers, but they're all what I would consider superstars, right? After number 11, there's a drop off. And in my opinion, from number 12 to number 39, and if you remember, I had 14 guys that I had as kind of like honorable mention who didn't quite make the list. Number 12 is definitely better than 39 in my opinion, but the gap is pretty small. As a matter of fact, I would say the gap between number 11 and number 12 is probably bigger than the gap between number 12 and number 39 on my list. These guys are all bunched together. So if you disagree with me about a specific spot in the rankings that you have, say for instance, you're like, how in the hell can you have John Morant over Anthony Edwards? That's ridiculous. John Morant's a better player than Anthony Edwards. Okay, even if you're right... I don't have much of a gap between those two guys. So we don't disagree by that much. It's not like I'm saying Anthony Edwards is incredible and John Morant's a bum, and you guys are disagreeing with that. No, I'm saying that I have Anthony Edwards is slightly better than John Morant, and in this particular list, that puts him at number 15 for me. And that gets me to my second thing that I want to say. The reason why I have Anthony Edwards as high as I do is it has to do with the way that I see the game of basketball, which is not necessarily the same way that you guys see the game. I don't think that I have the market cornered on basketball analysis. I don't think I know everything. I have my own perspective, and that's why I love talking to you guys and reading comments and picking the brains of every other person who works in the business and talking to other basketball players. I try to just take in as many perspectives as I can, and that's why my perspective shifts and changes from year to year as I learn more about the game, not just from the people that I talk to, but also from watching games. Like just in this season, what I've learned about the value of the shorter, stockier athletic guards like Anthony Edwards, we are all learning throughout this process. But with my current view of the game, I gravitate towards this archetype really well. And there's a specific reason for that. There are a lot of guys in the league that are more skilled than Anthony Edwards by a wide chasm. There are a lot of really skilled guards. Trey Young, for instance, way behind Anthony Edwards on this list. Trey Young is not even as skilled as some of his peers, but Trey Young is much more skilled than Anthony Edwards. But for whatever reason, Anthony Edwards is just capable of scoring the ball a lot easier and more efficiently in the playoffs. Now, he's, again, at this phase in his career, he's a different type of player, too. Trey Young's more of a passer. Trey Young's a better passer. But it, like they're totally different archetypes of players. But as we zoom in strictly on the ability to score the basketball, for some reason, it's easier than Ant than it is for Trey Young. Uh, why is that? It's because in that setting, when the refs allow more physicality, when scouting becomes a bigger part of the equation and the easy stuff gets taken away, the dudes that are bigger and stronger and faster for whatever reason are just capable of getting to their spots easier and making shots easier. It's just part of the way the game changes as you get to this phase. Now, again, I don't see much of a gap between Trey Young and Anthony Edwards. Again, these guys are all clustered up, but that's why I gravitate towards that type of player. It's a similar type of concept to LeBron James. There are a lot of players over the last 15 years that have been considerably more skilled than LeBron James. Guys like Kevin Durant, guys like Steph Curry, right? Why is it that I would even argue a guy like Paul George has like more tangible skill in terms of like ball handling and shooting than LeBron James? But from 2012 to 2020, none of those guys came remotely close to LeBron in consistent productivity and impacting winning in the NBA playoffs. Like, not even close. I mean, that's why he's second in the GOAT debate for me and first for many other people. Why Why is that? It's because he's bigger, stronger, faster, and when the game gets super 
competitive and 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 physical and the refs swallow the whistles, the dude who's bigger and stronger just has a lot of success. And, and, and again, like that, that's just the reality of the NBA playoffs. That's why we see really weird outcomes. Like D'Angelo Russell is a lot more skilled than Bruce Brown, but Bruce Brown whooped his freaking ass in that Western Conference final series. Utterly embarrassed him. You know, like Anthony Davis is one of the most skilled bigs in the league. Nikola Jokic is also very skilled and probably more skilled than Anthony Davis. But the reason why he whooped Anthony Davis's ass is he's too big and strong for him. He physically bullied Anthony Davis. In game four, when he was tied at 113 in the left corner, he had Anthony Davis on an island and he just ripped through and just shruck, like shucked him off with his left hand and went up and made it with his right. Like At the end of the day, this is a contact sport and the bigger, stronger, more athletic players just tend to play better. Four of the last five finals MVPs were the strongest guys in the league at their position. Nikola Jokic, Last year, two years before that, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Year before that, LeBron James. Year before that, Kawhi Leonard. Once again, Steph is the exception that proves the rule, which is what makes him so ridiculous. But basketball is a contact sport. Overall strength and athleticism wins most of the time. And that is why I gravitate towards guys like Anthony Edwards, and that's why I'm so high on him. And I don't think it's a coincidence that even at age 21, he's been so successful in the NBA playoffs. It's because of that unbelievable, top-tier, unstoppable, athletic set of tools that he has. Now, Ant has three primary areas for improvement, in my opinion. He needs to add a floater. He shot just 37% on floaters and made just 30 of them all season. Why is that? It's just something that will help his overall rim efficiency go up. Anthony shot 64% in the restricted area this year. That's very good compared to guards. But with his build and his athleticism, he should be closer to 70%, right? And a big part of that, in my opinion, is he's constantly challenging rim protectors. Adding a consistent floater so that he can make a read and say, oh, I've got this rim protector out of position, I'm going hard to the rim, or, oh, he's waiting on me, this is going to be a tough shot, let me stop short and make a little floater. Adding that to his game, I think, is going to go a long way towards raising his overall rim efficiency, raising his overall scoring volume, but also reducing the wear and tear on his body. So I'd like to see him add a a floater. He needs to improve as a playmaker. Just 4.4 assists to 3.3 turnovers in the regular season this year. Has a bit of tunnel vision. All of you Timberwolves fans have noticed this for sure, where you can just kind of tell when he's dribbling on the perimeter. It's like he's going to drive or he's going to take a pull-up jump shot. He's not looking to make a play for his teammates. And the reason why that's an issue is rim pressure opens up better passing opportunities than anything else. That, that's just the best way to create opportunities for your teammates. The defense just sucks into the paint. All eyes are on you. And there's easy kickouts to shooters and drop-offs to dunkers. That's why you see guys like John Morant and, and Russell Westbrook just rack up so many assists. They just pack the paint too much. And all those easy opportunities are there. So there's no reason with Anthony Edwards' ability to drive the basketball that he should be below six assists per game. And I'd like to see him get above that mark in the next couple of years. Lastly, he needs to learn to defend off the ball. Another big part of why I have Anthony Edwards as high as I do is I think he's absolutely frightening on the ball defensively. He is too quick and too strong, and when they allow that physicality in the playoffs, he just puts dudes in jail. 
And how many times did you watch during the regular season this year him and Jaden McDaniels just completely shut down the other two teams' best perimeter players as Minnesota grinded out a win on the defensive end of the floor? It's a huge part of why I'm so high on Ant. I think he has better defensive potential than most of the young players in the league. And that's crazy from a 6'6 guard. Uh, but right now, he's a pretty bad off-ball defender. He consistently overhelps, leaves shooters wide open, misses box outs, all that kind of stuff. And that's all just like focus and reps and instincts that he has to build over time. But it does undercut his defensive value a bit. So if Ant can fix that off-ball defense element, add a floater, become a better playmaker, that's where he enters into that superstar top 10 player of the league conversation. But to be clear, I expect him to be there within the next two or three years. That's how good I think this kid is. I already think he's really good right now. And quite frankly, I think the Wolves are going to be a playoff team next year if they stay mostly healthy. Number 14, Damian Lillard. Quick recap of the season, 32 points, 5 rebounds, 7 assists, career high in points per game, career high 65% true shooting. Still one of the most deadly shot makers in the league. 56% effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot jumpers. 54% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers. 45% on floaters. 3.5 restricted area makes per game on 63% shooting, which is like insanely good for a guard as small as Damian Lillard is. Um, He did add another level to his foul grifting game this season. He had a a career high 8.8 made free throws per game, which is two more than any season in his career. He shot 91% there. And do you guys remember that list of 15 players that I had as like the high volume pick and roll ball handlers that all ran at least a thousand? Well, in that list of a thousand high volume pick and roll players, out of those 15 guys, Dame finished second with only Luka Doncic ahead. The Blazers scored 1.14 points for Damian Lillard pick and roll. Remember the 250 ISO list? That's my high volume ISO list. 25 players in the league ran at least 250 ISOs. Dame finished third on that list, scoring 1.13 points per possession. Also an outstanding playmaker with a 2.17 assist-to-turnover ratio. He is still one of the very best offensive engines in the league. As a matter of fact, among the stars in the league, only Nikola Jokic, De'Aaron Fox, and Devin Booker logged higher offensive ratings than Damian Lillard did with the Blazers. And that, even though the Blazers do have a decent amount of offensive talent, the Denver, Sacramento, and Phoenix teams had more offensive talent. But as we know, Portland was a a very flawed roster. It did not have the interior defense that they needed to cover for the defensive shortcomings of their backcourt, which for the record, Dame plays a big part in. And so the Blazers were pretty embarrassingly bad this year. They finished the season 33 and 49, missed the play-in tournament entirely, which is unacceptable. But to be clear, Dame did his best to fight off those problems. They were much closer to 500 when he played. They were 27 and 31. They were. This is a crazy stat I put on Twitter earlier today. They were plus 105 this season with Dame on the floor. That was a better point differential than the Oklahoma City Thunder, for instance. So they were actually a decent team when he was on the floor, but they were minus 434 when he was off the floor, which is absolutely insane. That's a big part of why I've been in support of Damien's trade request. I think he's too good to be wasted on a team this bad. Portland's had more than enough opportunity to try to put a contender around him, and they just haven't been able to. So for me, it's kind of a waste of his all-time talent, and that's why I want to see him in Miami. Now, if Dame is so good, if I just laid out second-best pick-and-roll guy in the league, third-best uh, um, ISO guy in the league, you know, 64% true shooting on 32 points or 65% true shooting on 32 points per game, which is insane. Fourth best offensive rating among stars in the league. If, if he's that high, 
why is he down at 14? What is the difference here? And yes, part of it is me, you know, punishing, so to speak, or, or factoring in the fact that he missed the playoffs. But in my opinion, it has to do with two key weaknesses. Because in my opinion, and I genuinely believe this, I think Dame is every bit as good as Steph Curry on the basketball. In terms of just giving him the ball, spread floor, pick and roll ISO, Dame is just as good, in my opinion. But there are two massive areas that Steph is much better than Dame in, and that's the difference between being the 14th best player in the league and being much, much higher on the list the way the way that I have Steph. Those two things are Steph has committed himself to the defensive end of the floor, which has allowed him to become an average to slightly above average defensive player. Whereas Dame is a significant negative on the defensive end of the floor. That makes a big difference. Now, one thing I'll say in Dame's defense there is Steph is legitimately bigger. He's taller, has longer arms. That certainly helps. The second piece of it is Steph does a really good amount of his work offensively off the ball which helps in a bunch of different ways. It creates a bunch of opportunities for his teammates through the gravity, right? Guys like Steph running off of a wide pin down and both defenders running with him, leaving a cutter wide open or just the general chaos he causes running off the ball. But also, it allows him to have real variety in his attack. He's not just sitting from the top of the key attacking at a live pick and roll, a high pick and roll and ISO all the time. There is a really good balance between his off-ball action and his on-ball action. That is, a, that is a to me, a significant part of what makes Steph a better playoff player offensively excuse me, than Dame does, even if we look past the defensive differences. Here's a stat to demonstrate what I'm talking about. Dame and Steph both played about the same amount of games this year. Steph played 56 games. Dame played 58. Steph ran 888 pick and rolls and isos this year. Dame ran 1,599. Almost double. So the live ball, all five eyes staring at you type of plays, Dame ran twice as often. And again, we no one's going to complain. All the offensive numbers are there. 65% true shooting, 32 points per game. All the point per possession numbers are off the charts. But that's not the first time we've seen a heliocentric player succeed in the regular season, but then experience a tail off in efficiency when they get to the postseason. Steph Curry is 61% true shooting for his career in the playoffs. That's counting the early years when he wasn't as good and the teams weren't as good. Dame is at 56% for his career. That chasm there, in my opinion, has a lot to do with the off-ball, on-ball balance. Avoiding that redundancy and repetitiveness of just pounding the ball at the top of the key every single possession, which makes you easier to guard over the course of a seven-game series. And that's not even counting all of the easy baskets that Steph generates just by moving without the basketball and creating chaos for the defense. And so, again, like I believe Dame is every bit as good as Steph on the ball. But because he doesn't embrace that off-ball work that Steph does and the defensive end just working hard to not be a problem, that's the difference between being a top-tier bona fide championship-winning superstar and being what Damian Lillard is, which is just one of the best offensive players in the league. That has a ton of regular season success, but the playoff success isn't there to match it. Although, I do want to say in Dame's defense, Steph has definitely had better teams. But I also believe Steph is a better player. Those two concepts can both be true at the same time. So in summary, Dame is one of the best offensive engines in the NBA. He's a heliocentric pull-up shooter. That's an above-average passer. 
top-tier pick-and-roll ball handler and top-tier ISO guy in the league, but he's somewhat repetitive in the way that he attacks, and he's a bad defensive player, which have limited some of his top-end playoff ceiling. But I personally am very excited to see Dame play in Miami. I think Eric Spolstra is the best guy to bring out the best of him on the defensive end and to weaponize him more as an off-ball player, especially with how much they like to run action with Bam having the ball at the top of the key or just with Jimmy Butler having the ball. So I, I think that this has a chance to be the year where Damian Lillard kind of achieves the peak version of himself as a basketball player and that Heat team would be good enough to potentially win the title. And so, again, we don't know for sure if he's going to Miami, but I would love to see him there because I think we'd get to see the best version of Dame as a basketball player. All right, number 13, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, another one of my favorite players. Spoiler alert, I really like good basketball players. Um, Season recap. This was Shea's breakout year. Finished fourth in the league in scoring at 31.4 points per game. Finished with 31 points, five rebounds, and six assists per game. 63% true shooting. At this point, he doesn't really have an offensive weakness. He's the best rim-pressuring guard in the entire NBA. He led all guards with 4.7 restricted area makes per game on 64% shooting. He is one of the deadliest short-range pull-up jump shooters in the league. He actually shot 47% on pull-up jumpers overall. He also shot 44% on floaters. All of that combined to make Shea literally one of the very best paint scorers in the NBA. He averaged 15.9 points per game in the paint. That was third place in the entire league regardless of position. The only two guys ahead of him are Giannis and Zion Williamson. So aside from the two guys who literally all they do is bulldoze to the basket, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is the very best at getting to and scoring in the paint. He also shot 36% on pull-up threes, which is really good. Remember, that's one of the toughest shots in the game. Anything over 35% is really good. 1.93 assist-to-turnover ratio, which is really good. And again, playing with lesser offensive talent than you see elsewhere around the league. Gets to the foul line a ton, 91% on 11 attempts per game. If you absolutely had to pick a weakness to focus on, it would be his catch-and-shoot jump shot. He only shot 28% on those, although they were all threes, so it was 42% effective field goal percentage. But he barely ever took them. He actually took them less than once per game. And mostly, a couple reasons. One, he mostly had the ball in his hands. And two, when he caught on the perimeter in a spot-up situation, he tended to drive those closeouts. And guess what? He was really good at that, too. Despite shooting just 28% on catch-and-shoot jumpers, Shea converted spot-up possessions at 1.03 points per possession, which is above average. So he's just really damn good at everything, and the one weakness he has is one that doesn't really matter in this current situation, and my guess is if he played on a team with more talent and he got more catch-and-shoot reps, he'd probably shoot better on catch-and-shoot jumpers. All you basketball players know, if you ever have to do a thing only once per game or less, it's really hard to do it well because you don't really build a rhythm in that specific area. Uh, Shea's an old-school guard. Plays super physical, works hard for easy shots at the rim, which is a huge part of what makes him so efficiency uh, efficient. He's way bigger than people think. He's six foot six with a seven foot wingspan, six eleven and a half wingspan. He's capable of making every conceivable type of short range shot from any footwork, from any dribble combination, from any shooting pocket. If he needs to extend the release higher, hold on to it longer, shoot it lower, shoot it off to the side, shoot a floater, shoot a jump shot, shoot a hook shot. He's got them all. And that is what makes him so difficult to guard, especially at the end of games. We saw him hit several huge shots to win games this year, including making the game winner in the play-in tournament against the New Orleans Hornets. And that's why I actually do... we Because we've never actually seen him play a playoff series as the number one option 
And that's a big part of why he's down low on this list. Like, Shea made first-team All-NBA, and I have him 13. And a big part of that is you got to see something in the postseason, right? I mean, that's that's going to be an important step for anybody to dislodge players that we have above him on this list. But we are going to see him in those environments, and I expect him to succeed. And the main reason why is because he's just so versatile and so creative that he's incredibly unpredictable and difficult to guard in late game situations, which is why he consistently gets to a spot that he knows he can make a shot and he has a high percentage chance of making it. So I'm very, very excited to see Shea Gilgis-Alexander this year for the Thunder. I think they're going to make the postseason this year. I think Shea is the North American player, so counting Canada and the United States, that is most capable of challenging Giannis Luka and Jokic over the course of the next 10 years. I'm excited he got his coming out party last year, and I'm excited to see him and what he can accomplish this year. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. Just two guys tomorrow. We're going to be hitting number 12 and number 11 before we head into the final two weeks where we go one player at a time. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound... Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.